Pray with me, please. We rejoice in who you are, Lord Jesus. You have a name that has been, no other name has been given among men whereby we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, at your name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is something about that name. And Lord, I pray that today, that by your name and by your spirit, that we will understand, we will come understand just a little bit more about the realities of this life and even about um, the, the reality that is so tragic. That's the, the taking of another life, another imager of God. And Lord, Deuteronomy is going to be talking about this today. And help us, Lord, to understand. Help us, Lord, to accept what you have to say. And help us, Lord, to be prepared for uh, the world uh, out there. Help us, Lord, to love you, to serve you. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth. Help us, Lord, to love the people as well. And we thank you, Father, for what you'll do here today in this word of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's message is not pleasant, but is timely. As we know, one of the biggest issues of our day, well, besides other biggest issues of our day, like massive inflation, or baby formula shortages, or possible big people food shortages. Gas prices continuing to climb. Several countries seem to be angling to see who will be the first to start World War III, and on and on. But one of the biggest issues of our day has to do with the sixth word of the ten words. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill Indeed, the events surrounding the leaked Supreme Court opinion, which states Roe versus Wade should be overturned, has captured the spotlight. But people from all sides agree, liberals, conservatives in the middle, it doesn't matter. They all agree that the opinion, Roe versus Wade, was a bad opinion. It was written very poorly, and it needs to be overturned. And Justice Alito wrote that opinion. Now, it would be the most excellent thing, wouldn't it, if overturning of this opinion would result in the outright banning of all abortions in our country. But, tragically, not so. We all know that should Roe versus Wade be overturned, the issue is going to go back to the individual states where it began. The media, in all of its forms, continues to lie to us. How many so-called news reports say that when the overthrow of Roe versus Wade were to happen, it will mean that all abortions will be illegal. But let me give us some insight as we think about the Roe versus Wade decision. The issue is personhood. What is in the mother's womb? Is it a blob of cells? Is it a fetus? What about a little person who is wombing in? From the moment of conception, this little person is either a male or a female. It's a binary thing, only. But as long as we allow the pro-abortion people to say anything except that the one in the womb is a person, then the pro-abortion people will continue to win the argument, and more lives of unborn persons will be taken. Now, we're not going to talk about abortion. That's not our subject here. But it is appropriate that we talk about abortion, considering our passage for today which is Deuteronomy 19, 1 to 21. So if you don't have it out yet, please pull out Deuteronomy 19, 1 to 21. 
Now, indeed, this is a tough subject for today. One imager of God killing another imager of God. The Lord put out what appears to be hard and fast rules throughout Scripture regarding one person taking the life of another. And it all begins in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. In Exodus 21, 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Now, all these verses tell us one thing about life, that life is sacred from womb to the tomb. And even after that, see, everybody will be somewhere once we get to the other side. See, when one person takes the life of another, that's it. There is no decisions later on. That person's life, that person's destiny is now sealed. And so taking the life of another person is a big deal to God. And also, as we will see in our passage for today, again, Deuteronomy 19, 1 to 21, life is God's gift to us, as is everything that we have is ultimately a gift from him. I'm reminded of what James' half-brother, or what Jesus' half-brother James says regarding God's gifts in James 1, 17. It says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Now, in our passage for today, we will see how the Lord wants his people to deal with those who seek to take something that is not theirs. And, and it's not limited to just the breaking of the seventh commandment, the seventh word, which is don't steal. See, in a very real sense, every crime that's committed is in some way, shape, or form, it's the taking of something that doesn't belong to us. For example, idolatry is taking the glory that belongs only to God and putting it somewhere else. The failure to honor one's parents has to do with the taking of respect away from mom and dad, which rightly belongs to them. Adultery is the taking of someone else's husband or wife, breaking the marriage bond, and on and on it goes. So in the midst of all the unpleasantness of this passage, we will see some good news as well. And it begins right off the bat in verses 1 to 9 of our passage. Moses is going to talk about cities of refuge. And we're also going to see grace here as Moses gives a command regarding boundary markers, the inheritance that he's going to give his people. And finally, we will see grace as in the protection of a person falsely accused of a crime in verses 15 to 21. And so in summary of verses 1 to 3 of our passage, Moses tells the people that they're to establish three and at the most six cities of refuge. They're to establish, to set them up for one reason, and that is, quote, manslayer can flee to them. And Moses continues to talk about the purpose of these cities in the first part of verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. Now let's stop there, right there for a second. See, Yahweh 
through Moses, goes through all this trouble to provide up to six cities so that one who is a manslayer may flee to save his life. Now, we just read in the scripture that whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man his blood shall be shed. Isn't the forfeiture of one's life the penalty for shedding the blood of another imager of God? Now what God said? Isn't the Lord kind of going back on his word here now? Well, in the immortal words of Princess Bride's Vicini, not remotely. See, as we know, we need to understand the context of what we're reading. If not, we can make the Bible say anything we wanted to. Isn't that right? So let's finish verse 4. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. That's the context. And that's the purpose for establishing the cities of refuge. Then Moses paints a scenario of an unintentional death in verse 5. This is just an example is what he's doing here. When someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. This is an accidental death. You know, things happen beyond our control, don't they? Trees falling on people during storms, SIDS, brake failure just at the wrong place at the wrong time. See, because sin is in the world through our rebellion, that's why in part measure we have accidents. See, things decay and they fail. You know, babies die through no fault of their parents. In short, we live in a dangerous world. Remember Hurricane Irene about 10 years ago? See, Kitty and I do. See, it was late in the afternoon when things really got going. And we were we had some out-of-town friends who were kind of riding the storm out with us. And then all of a sudden, we heard a huge bang. Well, Gabriel was first on the scene. He went upstairs and he said, hey, what's going on up here? And then he saw it and he told us. See, a tree paid visit to our bedroom. And the target was our bed. See, if the tree's arrival would have just happened just a few hours later, we would have been in that bed. So God spared us. He preserved us. I'm glad about that. But now the friends who stayed with us to ride the storm out, they've been traumatized to this day. They've never been back to our house. Now go with me, though, back to the days of Moses. Can you imagine what life would be like to hear the news? A dear member of your family was with his neighbor doing stuff. And through a series of events, he is now dead. Can you imagine the trauma? See, where is that neighbor? See, in a blind rage, coupled with extreme sorrow, you make a beeline to his house. But he's not at his house. Where is he? He's in one of those cities of refuge. And the rule is, the one who kills someone accidentally is to live in that city of refuge and remain there until the death of the high priest, as it tells us in the book of Numbers. He is not to leave the city for any reason whatsoever, lest the avenger of blood, as in the head of the household or the firstborn son, comes and kills him, and thereby enacting revenge. So what is the purpose for the city of refuge? Well, let me give you two, actually. First is the protection of the innocent person who took the life of someone accidentally. 
And second, it serves to protect the nation so that Israel doesn't descend into a bunch of vigilantes. And that's the grace part here. Now let's look at the justice part when it talks about someone who didn't kill someone accidentally. Verses 11 to 13. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, white space, thinking he'll have some refuge and protection, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Just as the elders of the city of refuge protected the innocent person who killed someone accidentally, if the elders then discovered that the manslayer was now a murderer, then they were to hand this person over to eventually the avenger of blood. And then the father or the uh, firstborn was to be the executioner. Now, in this whole ordeal, notice the approach and the demeanor of all involved. Your eyes shall not pity him. You shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. This issue is treated with the utmost seriousness. See, the elders and even the family of the one murdered are not to feel sorry for the murderer. The issue of is one of justice being done rather than making the murderer feel relief. Further, God calls this process a purging of the guilt of the innocent blood of Israel. Now, things have changed a lot between then and now. You know, it seems that the biggest thing on the agenda of the one found guilty of murder nowadays is how repentant and how remorseful this person is. And if sufficient remorse is displayed, perhaps the murderer can get off with a lighter sentence. Now, of course, those who commit capital murder in our country get the death sentence, and it matters little how remorseful this person is. And as an aside, I'm convinced that we in our country have become, as it were, victims of our success. Because of the Judeo-Christian values that our country was established upon, we have great hope that we can rehabilitate prisoners because we see them as having great worth and dignity, fellow imagers of God. Now you think about what the uh, the report we just heard. You know, the, the Lord has worked such a work in Ryan's heart and now he's passing on the ways of the Lord to other people. You know, the, the Lord can work a great work even behind the walls of the prisons. And I praise God for that. But now over the years, we have drifted far away from the Lord as a culture, haven't we? And we're now following the ways of the world concerning justice. And according to the ways of the world, in a large measure, a person who commits a crime does so because of his upbringing, his environment, even his mental or his emotional problems. And so if we educate him, the thought goes and the approach goes, he will be able to improve the environment. And if we do improve the environment overall, we will send him back into society and hopefully he will have made the world a better place so that fewer people will wind up in the correctional centers part of the system. But where does crime come from? Does it come from the environment? Or does it come from the person who committed the crime? See, the world says it is the environment, and we've got to fix the environment. 
But the Lord Jesus says it comes from the heart. And here's what Matthew says concerning the heart as he recorded the words of Jesus in Matthew 15. Out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander, and so many more things. In other words, our culture, based on what began as hopeful optimism, that all people are salvageable through the blood of Christ, have turned their collective backs on Christ regarding the justice system. And so consequently, all they have is only hopeful optimism. And that spells a high percentage of those who are arrested and then released only to get rearrested. For example, a study published in July 30th, I'm going to give you some figures here, so don't glaze over too much. From the Bureau of Justice Statistics shows this. Nearly half of the prisoners released in 2012 returned to prison within five years for a parole or probation violation or a new sentence. In 2012, about 81% of prisoners aged 24 or younger were arrested within five years of release, compared to 74% of those between 25 and 39 and 61% of those over 40. That's a pretty high percentage, isn't it? Let's never forget the vital truth as found in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can know it? The only thing that can transform the heart is the gospel of Christ. In one example, Teen Challenge, which is really involved in, in these kinds of issues. They boast in the Lord's working in their ministry of only a 24% recidivism rate. See, truly, Christ-centered approach yields a far better results than that of the world. So now let's turn the corner from the cities of refuge and talk very briefly about the boundary markers. And God, through Moses, gave them this command. Don't move the boundary markers with the inheritance that I'm going to give you. It's a reminder to the people that it is the Lord giving them the land that they're going to occupy in a very short time. Like life, the land was the Lord's gift to his people. And I'm reminded what Paul told Timothy, his mentee, that God gave all good things to enjoy. See, we're not to set our hope on the things of this world, but we can enjoy them. So let's not grow our roots too deeply here, though, because we are sojourners and we're exiles in a foreign land. We're just passing through on our way to our eternal home. Let's prepare ourselves for this. And finally, let's look at the Lord's standard for establishing guilt in a criminal matter. And let's see what happens when a squeaky wheel acts up in God's economy. You know, you've heard about that term, squeaky wheel. It always gets the grace. Well, God's got some things to say about the squeaky wheel. These things are found in verses 15 to 21. And the norm here is no he said, she said business. See, the standard for God is two to three witnesses, two or three witnesses, in which every matter is to be established. And as an aside, what would our justice system be like if we were just to follow this simple test? Sounds pretty cut and dry here, but aren't the ways of the Lord always superior to our own ways? Speaking of the Lord's ways being superior, let's notice verses 16 to 20, and then let's read these verses and follow along. 
If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office of those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and the accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The issue is what Moses calls a malicious witness here. Notice how many witnesses are here. Not two, not three, but exactly one. One witness. But now the scholars are pretty much in agreement that a one witness crime is inevitable. That may be true that there's that there are crimes committed that there's only one witness available. But it's these same scholars who quickly say that for the most part, the motive of a single witness is to do some mischief. And he or she is a malicious witness. So according to Moses' command, what are the judges supposed to do to the accuser if they find out that he or she is lying? The same thing the accuser wants done to the accused. Doesn't matter what it is. I want that person dead because of what they did. If that person's a liar, guess what happens to the person? So let me tell you two stories in this regard. The first one is right after Solomon became king in 1 Kings chapter 3. It was about two prostitutes. Remember this story? Now, what a story. What a, what a lovely story. And how these two prostitutes made it to the king's throne is amazing to me. And so let's call these two ladies, Susie and Sally. And they both share a house, and they each have a newborn baby. But things took a turn for the worse with them. See, Susie told the king that Sally's baby died. And so in the middle of the night, Sally switched babies and gave her dead baby to Susie. And Sally kept Susie's baby for herself. And what a coincidence. No one else saw this happen. So Sally had a story too. And she said right in front of Solomon, Hey, Susie, you know the living child is mine, not yours. And then Susie yelled back, You're wrong. The living child is mine. Dead child is yours. Can you imagine the scene there? Can you imagine what Solomon must be thinking? Well, Solomon sums up the situation. He said, bring a sword. Divide the living child in two. Give half to Susie, and the other half child goes to Sally. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other one said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him up. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. Well, it looks like the malicious witness received a dead baby. Second story, I wrestle with this whole thing about Blase Ford and Kavanaugh, but my, my opinion is she was a malicious witness. Her testimony did not derail Kavanaugh's appointment to Supreme Court, but it almost wrecked his life. 
See, it was a single witness situation. It was a he said, she said. And after Kavanaugh's appointment, Ford's testimony is that her life to this day is one of death threats and continual security protection. While Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. Could it be that she now is experiencing what Kavanaugh experienced during his hearing? So what is the bottom line with all of this? And how can we apply a divine justice frame of mind to our day and our situations? So let me crystallize. I mentioned that the city's refuge, the boundary markers, and the standard of two to three witnesses serve as God's gifts of grace and protection of individuals and the nation. See, it reminds me of what Paul told the Corinthian church in chapter 14, verse 40, that all things were to be done decently and in order. And since Israel and we live in a fallen world, mistakes do happen. And sometimes death results. There are people who are malicious in their intent about things. And if evil people would have their way about things, they certainly would agitate the crowd and make things happen in the way they want things done and not necessarily according to the ways of the Lord. Are we familiar with these kinds of things? And so I'm glad that Moses commanded the establishment not only of cities of refuge, but also the establishment of two or three witnesses regarding any wrongdoing. Israel was to purge the land of wickedness. They were God's holy people, and they had a duty to live holy witnesses, as holy witnesses, in front of the pagans. Well, that was then, and this is now. As Moses established places of refuge, so the Lord has done the same for us. And that place of refuge is salvation found in Christ alone. The promises of God stand firmly on the foundation that it is impossible for God to lie. Listen to the great words of comfort that the writer to the Hebrews gives us in chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have as this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a forever high priest. Now, in case you haven't heard, there's a storm coming, a big one. And at the right time, the Lord will return to judge the earth. And even before that, the Lord will send his angels to enact the great tribulation. Jesus said it would be so terrible that if the days were not shortened, no one would be saved. And we who have run to Jesus for refuge are protected from total destruction. But don't mishear me. This does not mean that we won't get caught in the crossfire of pain or destruction of our lifestyle or even our physical life. But this life is not something we should value. It should be. And we shouldn't even value our own lives at all. Didn't Paul say, I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish 
the course and ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, we who have fled to Jesus ought to have the same conviction about our lives as Paul had about his. How precious you count your life unto yourself. May I say this with as much tenderness as I can as your pastor, and I'm saying this to myself as well. See, to the degree that we count our lives precious to ourselves is the degree that we are hindering and fulfilling the course and ministry that the Lord has given us. Let's don't count our lives precious to ourselves. See, there's a storm coming. The wrath of God is sure to happen. Though the Lord is patient and kind, one day his patience and kindness will give way to his burning wrath. And the only way we can avoid his wrath is to run to Jesus. He is our strong tower. Hear the Lord's words to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah when he said this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our Lord Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise, by the way. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That too is a promise. The Lord is calling us to overcome as he overcame. Will you utilize the resources he has given you to prepare you to overcome? Will you endeavor to walk with him, to make the choices to pray, to intake the word of God into your spirit and your soul, and to actually obey what he has commanded you that you might show him that you love him? Second takeaway is simple wisdom. See, get a second opinion about everything and evaluate it by the word of God. No, he said, she said type stuff. See, Proverbs 18, 17 tells us, the one who states his case first seems right until another one comes along and examines him. You ever experienced that? Make sure that what you buy into is firmly established on truth. A musical prophet back in the day, Keith Green, wrote a song called Lies. And part of the lyrics go like this. When I was young, I just believed everything I heard. But now the only thing I can believe is God's word. And in keeping with wisdom and about what the Lord would have us do regarding our thoughts, it would be a good time now to pull out our Thropograp acronym again. See how we need to commit this to memory, and then evaluate everything we hear by it. The Lord has given us his strong tower to run to for refuge. And he has given us his word to help us to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so my challenge for all of us is to commit thropograp to memory. You know what this is, don't you? We've done this before. So let's have this as our filter through which we encounter everything that we're thinking about. This is Philippians 4.8. So if you will, please say it with me as we bring this message to a close. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent 
and worthy of praise. Think about these things. Propograph. Well, we got a couple minutes. And so it's now time for Q&A, if you would like. So anybody have any comments or questions about today? Oh, thank you. Praise the Lord. Rachel. So, and talking about the thou shalt not kill, and if yes. you do kill, you should be put to death. Yes. How does that change after Christ's death? Because when Christ came, things changed. Yes. And he then says that he will get his revenge. It is not our place. We have no right to judge. So how does one affect the other? Yeah. The, that's a very good question, by the way. And, and there, is a, there are a lot of people who say, you know, I'm, I'm turning my back against the Lord because of that very same thing. It's the issue of systems of government. In the Old Testament, the, the avenger, the executor, was the family member. In this case, if you go to Romans 13, it talks about that very same issue. The governmental system that has been set up in the New Testament times is that it's the governmental system that yields or that wields the sword. The sword is not wielded in vain. And so it's the state that has the responsibility to put the, uh, to put the murderer to death. Thank you. So how do we differentiate between the responsibilities of the Christian and the responsibilities of the law? Because we do two different things, right? The law or man's law says this, but as Christians, we go according to Scripture. Jesus was about no vengeance. Yes. So how do we incorporate this in today's world? Yes. No vengeance, yes, as far as because the Scripture tells us to leave room for the wrath of God. God is the one that, that, that uh, pours out his vengeance. However, when something, when, when a, um, when, when a crime has been committed, that needs to be taken care of. There is a system of justice that needs to be done. And so if, if, if I'm a victim of a crime, then the, the state needs to help me to, to remedy that, to rectify that. Now, concerning my own, my own revenge to that individual, I am to forgive. I am to help that person. And in fact, I'm to, I'm to minister to that person. You know, now, it doesn't change the fact that this person may be going to jail, may be going to jail for the rest of his life, but my own attitude is not that I don't take revenge, you know, upon that individual. So how does this relate, or, and when you have to take the life through war? Yes. Well, war has been with us all the way through, and uh, God even tells the people, hey, you know, because whole book of Deuteronomy, for example, is I'm going to take my people and I'm commanding you to go in there and wipe everybody out. All seven nations, as, as some people call it, spiritual squatters. All these people are wicked people, and I'm going to tell you, my people, to go and wipe out everybody that breathes. And so God tells his people to do that then. And even now, because as we mentioned before, it's the issue of the state. The state is the one that calls, especially in our country, in our inner system of government, calls the state to go. And if there's issues, like if there's, you know, uh, like World War II, for example, and, and all those other things, if, if there's an attack upon our nation, we have to go and we have to fight. And when we fight, we are to win. You know, it's not like, you know, we, it's not the thing about us dying for our own country, we're to make the other person die for theirs. <laughs> That's the idea there. 
And it's, it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. Because, again, when there's injustice that happens, then sometimes the only answer is to go to war from one nation to another nation. And, in, and when it comes down to the end, though, Jesus is the ultimate warrior. And when he comes back, he's going to destroy all the nations. You know, and, and I think sometimes people get the mis, uh, un, uh, or misunderstanding that, you know, because Christians were called to love and God is love, that there's no room for God's justice. Well, that's, that's definitely a wrong answer because Jesus is love. He's also just, and that he calls us to do the same thing. Now, again, we don't go and we don't have our own revenge, but uh, we, we do make sure that the, rights, the, the wrongs are righted. Does that make sense? So how does that stand track if you, say, happen to live in Germany when Hitler was in power? Or if you are a Russian now, if you're a Christian and you're supposed to follow Scripture first and then the law of man, do you abstain from the war if it's wrong? How do you know when to make that call? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Uh, a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer comes to mind right now. And as a Christian, he could not go along with uh, the Nazis. In fact, he tried to plot a, he tried to make a plot against Hitler himself. And, uh, when he was found out about it, he himself was hung. But he still went against, you know, what Hitler and his regime did. So, uh, yeah, it, if, if the, uh, if the system of government, you know, is so corrupt, sometimes we have to go against that. It depends on how the Lord leads us to do these things. So, yes, Greg. That, that there is not one overriding answer to your question, because I would also bring up Sergeant York from World War One, And Sergeant York was um, a conscientious objector and refused to be drafted into the military. When he received his draft notice, he went away in prayer and fasting. And it was at that time that, through the Holy Spirit, he became convinced that it was his duty to go fight. So uh, I believe we should all start from that point of being a conscientious objector, but allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit. Because if the, if the battle is for righteousness, for righteousness' sake, for the glory of God, then, then we will be obligated to engage. Absolutely. Yes. And there are a lot of people in, in the military. You know, chaplains, for example, are non-combatants. Chaplains are not allowed to carry weapons, but their chaplain assistant does. And so I'm glad that my chaplain assistants were sharpshooters. <laughs> they knew how to take care of people. That was great. Melissa. The other thing, though, is, is that if the government is your boss, you do have to be very careful about that. So they are your authority, and if they are telling you to do something, then you it's in the Bible that we are not to move against the Jews. That's very clear. Um, but not everyone is a Jew. So, um, yes. I, right, because we do have a lot of military. Yes. So, we right, like we can't stomp on our people that are being paid by the military for, for their service. Right, and, and again, it, it comes down to the individual person, you know. Should I go against what they're telling me to do, or should I not? It, it really is, it, um, is up to the individual. And also, there are commanders who uh, give unlawful orders. 
and it's called law of arm, uh, law of arm conflict, uh, LOAC. And so um, the person who is subordinate is required to tell the commander, no, I can't do this because of law of arm conflict. So there's, there's a lot of things we have to take into consideration. But the ultimate, the ultimate thing is we all have to stand before the Lord on that day and give an account. And so whether we believe that we are doing right by going with the, what the government says, even if it is in the overall scheme of things wrong or any other points in between, you know, we have to make sure that uh, we have to be right before the Lord first and foremost. Let's pray. Father, this was a tough message, and uh, these literally are issues of life and death. And Lord, in the Old Testament, things were different than, than they are now. Lord, you tell us in your word now that we are to leave room for your wrath. And it's, it's very difficult to sort things out, especially in a country like ours. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand where we need to stand that you would help us to, to know, Lord, in, in your presence, in your eyes, that we need to be right with you. So, Lord, lead us and guide us. And, Lord, even if that means that we have to take a stand by ourselves, that um, based on the conviction that you give us, that indeed that would be a conviction and not just a strong opinion, that we'd be willing to, to fall on our sword for this. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would help us. And then all along, Lord, that you would continue to bring us together as your people uh, in your church, together in unity and love, regardless of which side of the political aisle we're on or whatever. Lord, help us to truly love each other because this is how the world will know that you came to save them if we have love and unity toward one another. So now, Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us as we enact a couple more, um, a couple more uh, acts of, of worship. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to do these things to give of our resources um, the way that you would want us to give. Lord, I pray that we would sing um, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to give these things as acts of worship because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.